Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. As climate countdown continues apace, we look this week at a central bottleneck that, if not addressed, could confound even the best intentions. I'm talking about talent and the tens of thousands of sustainability-related jobs that will go unfilled in coming years unless the public and private sector line up to address the problem. One woman is doing something about it. Dr. Jeannie Ng is chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Qualified Environmental Professionals. She and her colleagues are bent on transforming Hong Kong into a center of excellence in professional environmental services. And not solely as a defense against climate disaster, but as a way of accelerating research and innovation to transform business and the economy. To get there, both government and private sector must step up and support the training, development, and hiring of people with new skill sets for a new era. This means expanding sustainability programs at universities, creating accreditations through professional institutes, and encouraging companies to create roles and career paths to hone that expertise. Before asking Jeannie to comment further on these developments, a word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Jeannie Ung, thank you so much for joining us from Hong Kong. Um, uh, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to. It's uh, an area where both you and I have a vested interest in trying to understand what can be done to address some of the creeping and growing climate issues in Asia Pacific. Um, but before we get started, could you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Well, thank you, Steve, for having me. Um, I am the chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Qualified Environmental Professionals, um, HKIQEP for short, even though that's not very short, but <laughs> that was that was uh, the abbreviation we landed on. Um, and really, we are an organization, a nonprofit organization that is trying to um, champion the movement on uh, professionalizing the environmental uh, industry. Uh, you know, just like you have chartered engineers, chartered accountants, uh, it's time for us to move this industry forward and mature it to a point where you actually do have professionalization of those that are in charge of implementing solutions um, that either avoid negative impacts or can fix some of these things. So I think um, as the world is changing and more and more of the environmental issues become more complex, you know, obviously we need more and more um, uh, experience and knowledge uh, really to to manage the situation. So this is this is our remit, really. This is the organization's remit. Yeah, and an important one. Um, let, let's set the context on this sure. first. You and I sit here in Asia Pacific. It is uh, we're on the cusp of the COP26 discussions, which will take place in the UK end of this month, uh, beginning of November, and. It appears that Asia Pacific is well behind in terms of its commitments. Part of that can be chalked up to government intransigence. Some of it could be by virtue of the pandemic, which has set us all back economically. But then a part of it is also about talent and shortage of talent in order to address effectively some of the challenges that are coming down the pipe. What are your general impressions on how Asia is showing up? for the challenges posed by climate change? 
Well, I think for climate change, um, so what's interesting, of course, and this has been talked about a lot at, at you know, various COPs and, and thus the, um, uh, the uh, common but differentiated responsibilities term, because, you know, the, obviously the perception that basically it's the developed world that's, you know, put all these emissions out, that's the legacy. And yet, you know, those that have yet to be developed, you know, they're the ones now suffering some of the impacts, uh, you know, how this inequity can be balanced. And of course, part of it is the financial piece. Um, I think, you know, in addition to talent, I think one of the key, I think one of the key challenges, especially in Asia, is, you know, how do you finance it? And I think you, we, although we are seeing more renewable energy uh, projects being more commercially viable in the US and in Europe, but they are located geographically in areas such that, you know, that is happening. Um, and they have a market whereby, you know, the signal is also moving them in that direction, whereby renewables is now becoming uh, cheaper than, than fossil fuels. But in this part of the world, in Asia, it is a very different situation. You know, we mm. really don't have as much renewable capacity uh, today, given today's technologies. I think once we look more into offshore, maybe there could be even more uh, potential for renewables. But in the meantime, the fact that you know coal still is uh, in most countries here the cheaper and more affordable option, then that really is the challenge and hurdle we need to get over. You believe that's a um, it's so it's purely a cost issue for many of these developing markets from Indonesia, the Philippines, and elsewhere. Even China, um, there have been some recent declarations that they're going to back off um, financing of uh, coal-fired power plants outside of China. Uh, we don't really know what they're going to do within China at this point. Yet, um, the economics would also suggest that the price point on renewables from solar and wind is falling and falling dramatically. Um, in many countries, Europe, elsewhere, feed-in tariffs or other government subsidies helped at least kickstart the process. What's missing in this part of the world, um, and and why is it taking longer? Well, of course, we go back to uh, land. Uh, you know, a lot of these installations require a lot of land. Uh, and the land situated in a place where you do get a lot of sunlight or a lot of wind. And I think when you look at the Northern Hemisphere versus the Southern Hemisphere, like the amount of, of renewables, right, in the different parts of the world, it is, it is different. So um, in China, and, and what's interesting just now, I did mention, you know, the importance of if, if, if the system it has a market economy there, then it's about the prices of the options being which is the cheapest. But there's also another really um, powerful tool, which is basically policies, top-down policies. So like in China, the fact that they're not waiting for that to happen, they didn't wait for that to happen. They've created an environment that helped to facilitate that to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, you know, the same in Europe um, that made, I think, you know, wind farms ultimately, you know, cheaper and cheaper today, but without countries and governments in the beginning, perhaps saying, look, this is going to be the direction. And yes, it's going to be a bit painful from a, a economic or financial investment perspective in the beginning, but this is investment in our future. Mm. And, and China is doing that. And this is why I, I you know, the, the, the closing down or uh, the tempering of the amount of new coal, of course, you know, that's, that's going to come down. The peaking is going to come down, but 
you know, there's options for China to look at many different types of of uh, of options. Whether you know they they can renewable. There's renewables. There's nuclear. Um, and you know, hydrogen is something also that you know they could definitely uh, be be advancing. And I think when countries start to look at it, not just from a risk perspective, but then think about well, what are the opportunities? Actually, if I can develop these net zero carbon technologies and products that are needed in the future, and I start investing and building that today, that could be my future business model. Well, that's think, an interesting. Mm, yeah. That's a really interesting point, Jeannie, because I think uh, many. Uh, organizations in Asia, when they think about sustainability or ESG, think about risk and compliance first versus opportunity and growth. And so there seems to be an orientation around, you know, oh, uh, this is one more cost I now need to deal with. What yet? Yet in the Western world, we're now seeing this shift. This actually idea: this is new economy opportunity. Why is it lagging in Asia? What what's going on with the mindset, or is it simply that it hasn't filtered through yet uh, because we're still in the early stages of trying to address these problems? Well, I do think there's a combination of at least two things that I can think of. I, I think um, you know, first of all, uh, culturally, I think the Asian culture has always been we are much more of a compliant uh, or compliance driven uh, culture here. So. You know, I think that's why quite often we are waiting for the rules to come in to tell us, okay, this is what we need to do. And, and that's one dimension. Uh, but having said that, there's one more universal dimension is it takes everyone time to learn. Mm-hmm. It's a learning curve, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at a lot of the environmental issues, it always starts in Europe, then it's North America, then it comes to Asia. You see that pattern. It's, 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 it's a learning curve. We all need to go through it whether it's countries or companies. And, you know, when we talk about sustainability in companies, one company will think it's only environment, whereas, you know, the more advanced companies already think, no, this is long-term business continuity planning. This, you know, this is really what we're really looking at. So I think this, this last factor about learning curve, I think we should always be mindful that actually that is happening all the time. When we look at any topic that, oh, you know, someone may be looking at it because they're, at a certain point of the learning curve, um, and and that's why they have a different perspective. So there's there's a push to raise awareness that in fact sustainability is a career choice. That there's some wonderful opportunities emerging, and maybe it hasn't filtered through at this stage, but it's coming. Um, and of course, when we speak about um, some of the opportunities of sustainability, it's more than energy. It's supply chain. Um, it, it's agriculture. Uh, there are so many contributors to, glo- uh, to global uh, warming that um, oftentimes are largely attributed to energy, but there's so much more than that. So, so across this spectrum and across these industries, um, it requires talent. It requires capable, competent, uh, well-informed, well-educated people who have expertise in these areas in order to make the difference. What are some of your primary concerns and where are the main talent shortages at this point in time? Right. I think, um, and I'll start with the environment part because, and, and first I did want to clarify when I think of sustainability or sustainable development, it's, it's, a, it's a balance of three areas. It's economic, environment, and social. And those kind of need to be balanced. And so the environmental is one leg of this you know, three-legged stool. And I'll start with environment. I think with environment, one of the issues has been that um, 
the nature of the impacts of the environment, there's always a disconnect between the time of the pollution or the unintended pollution to when the consequence actually is significant enough that people realize it. So there's this time lag where people in between don't even realize you know, that, that that's happening. Secondly, there's a disconnect between the stakeholders, like the stakeholders that gain from taking away from the environment are not the same stakeholders that actually get impacted by the negative impacts of the environment. So all these disconnects uh, result in the fact that, you know, I know the world really wants a market system and, and, and things to be a bit more free in terms of, you know, the cost effectiveness of where solutions should be. But I think for environment, you really need more regulations because of this disconnect. And the lack of regulations, and even when there is regulations, the lack of proper enforcement of the regulations has typically been the problem. And then you add to that people who are passionate in this area. And I, you know, I was once definitely, I'm still very passionate, but when you are working in an environment where your sole clients are clients that tell you, well, can you fudge this a bit? Can you, and by the way, if you don't do this, you're not getting business from me ever again. Mm. And so this is why I go back to the point of professionalism, of having a register, just like a lawyer or a doctor, that we have a reason to tell our clients this is not right. And, you know, and, you know, we can be disbarred or deregistered. Therefore, we have a reason to stand up for that opinion. And right now, because that doesn't happen, um, you know, then we, we have declining quality of work. Uh, mm. You look at the you know, United Nations Environment Program, and they've been trying to track sort of this, you know, the success rates of implementation of these environmental laws and whether the performance has been any better. It really hasn't. And so um, I think that area, this is why having a regulation to start to professionalize industry, I think could help change it, help retain, retain talent. Actually, that was the other thing. People do not get paid enough. I mean, you get to a point where if this industry is seen as more of like an NGO, no career advancement, no promotional opportunity, it's just it's just an um, thirty years of just jobs, you know, you know, odd jobs here and there. You really won't retain talent. So, and and this is starting to happen in the sustainability area where now there's also a need for corporates. Uh, corporate sustainability prof uh, professionals, because again, you know, if it's not an area where the uh, the remuneration is good, you will not be able to retain talent. I think it's less of a problem because right now I think corporates do actually realize <laughs> that they need sustainability practitioners. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, the pay, if the pay is good enough, you might actually get that to happen on its own. Whereas the environmental, it's been very difficult. Really interesting. You've you've raised some fascinating points. I mean, well, let's just go back for a second. Contextually, um, you're right. I mean, when if you think about the types of roles or the type of of sustainability expertise that existed in the region to date, you'll find them within NGOs, conservation based NGOs, or um, in in CRM roles or communications roles, like corporate social responsibility, where people have you know participated on the philanthropic side of an organization, mm -hmm. and yet they may not have some of the commercial acumen to be effective on the business side. 
all of a sudden, you know, ESG is becoming um, a requirement, reporting requirement for corporations, uh, a, a, a criteria for investors as they go to market to identify, you know, um, new, new new opportunities. And if you don't have somebody who could scrutinize at a technical level these types of requirements, you're not going to be effective, and ultimately, you could be, you know, held accountable. So making that transition. It leaves you with two options. You either go and train up people who have that at least sensibility around what sustain- good sustainability looks like, good environment policy looks like, or you start to create um, new pools of talent through education, training, you know, as you say, accreditations, uh, or you bring folks in from the organization from other sides, maybe from operations or, or wherever the case may be, or finance. To, to develop them in areas that they that may be new to them. So it seems to me like there's there needs to be this kind of confluence of activity. And yet I, I'm not entirely aware that I'm seeing much of that. Um, yeah. you then you then you then bring in the whole government aspect. Well, if government's not holding you accountable, well, maybe I can fudge this for a while, right? Yep. So it's a it's a bit of a stew, isn't it? It's an yeah. interesting moment in time. Mm-hmm. This kind of comes back to your group. You know, mm. what specifically are you all trying to do in order to move the dial? Right. So I think as with any um, big ideas, we have to start small and implement and sort of show from a piloting perspective how this could work. Mm. So like in Hong Kong, you know, we are a very small place, but what we're trying to show is you can develop a qualification system, a robust one. So we, you know, we have a, a qualification process similar to like the engineers in Hong Kong, for example. And so, you know, they have to do a multiple choice exam and they have to then uh, do a professional interview after at least five years of working experience. Uh, and they have to pass everything before they can be registered. Right. So we've developed a register of uh, qualified uh, professionals, environmental professionals. Um the, we actually also instigated uh, a pledge system whereby we actually, you know, enticed actually 45 of the biggest uh, uh, businesses and organizations in Hong Kong to, to pledge to only uh, employ qualified environmental professionals for certain uh, uh, positions above a certain level. Because, of course, you know, junior staff may be less so, but, you know, the managers or the decision makers on environmental policies and organizations, they need to be qualified, right? Private sector or government? Private, private okay. sector, private right. sector. Mm. And uh, even the government now is also moving to start to recognize the qualification. So when they are uh, letting out, uh, so the development bureau, when they're letting out consulting projects, they actually do have specifications that on the environmental section of the assessment, it needs to be done by, you know, qualified environmental professionals or members of uh, the uh, environmental um, discipline of the Hong Kong Institute of Engineers, for example. So they'll mm. very specifically specify you know, who's qualified. And uh, you know, we know that in the next few months, the government also is going to start to think about for their employment purposes as well, how do they you know, take this into consideration? Now, I think all of this is moving towards a big sort of bigger, the bigger ultimate goal is actually enacting an ordinance, right? That when do you have an ordinance that actually says, look, anything that professionally needs to be signed off 
whether it's an environmental impact assessment or other environmental assessments um, to do with you know, critical infrastructure, et cetera, they need to be signed off by qualified people. And that we're working towards that. Um, and I think that's something that we see around the world, it's missing. Like it's not just in Asia. Uh, you look at the US, you know, its environment is being managed, but it's managed very piecemeal. Uh, you know, you have qualifications, very specific, soil remediation, water remediation. It's like the environmental industry is still very in its nascent sort of technician blue collar phase, right? So mm. that's why we're not, you know, we're not, we're not getting that, uh, that expansion into the more strategic part, which is where climate change comes in too, because like climate change is an issue where, you know, it's not about, you know, necessarily testing the water and testing the soil. You are talking about how a business model needs to change, right? That, uh, that totally could flip it upside down because of the type of energy that's needed or the, the type of raw materials or even what they're delivering in the future. You know, is that something that needs to change? Yeah. And, and you know, it, you think about these commitments that nations are making as COP26, Paris Agreement and beyond. Um, well, they require participation by the corporations and institutions that are generating the carbon output. And if you don't have the right skill sets in place to identify, monitor, reduce, report, um, you're not going to be able to be effective, nor are you going to be able to hold your head up when it comes to reporting your progress. So it, it is linked. There is a public-private you know, initiative or, or, or requirement here in order to get on the same page in order to meet those expectations. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I think, the, and this is, I was just sort of saying, it's funny, I was just talking to someone else the other day, and, and this was a person who is very good at the strategic things, the strategic stuff. And, you know, this person, she was one of the first people probably in this industry, um, you know, to start. But, you know, she was sharing how even she was feeling, wow, like that level of knowledge and the detail, the science background that you need now to actually deliver the work that's necessary, you know, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's different. It's different from yeah. what was expected before. In fact, I wanted to go back to one point you made earlier about training people, training talent, I think when the topic or subject matter is still very nascent and very new, there's a tendency for us to train existing staff. And if the company was an industry, industrial sector, then their concept of sustainability probably started with the environmental side. So they may start with, you know, the head of environment, you know, you look at sustainability. Whereas, you know, a service or, or uh, a more uh, retail sector, they may start with the marketing person or CSR era because that, you know, that was kind of how they started their learning curve. That's where they started their learning journey. And, and in the er early years or early decade, I think it's, it's normal. Everybody does it that way. I think only when you get to a point where you realize, okay, these requirements are now here to stay. And they're getting more and more complex. They're not going to fly by night and then they're gone, but they're now getting more and more complex. And then when that actually does happen, then you start to have a need for, I think, appropriate training um, for more dedicated experts um, and a combination. I, look, you know, sustainability, corporate sustainability in a company is really about long-term business continuity planning, as I mentioned. And it does mean that the head of HR needs to think of 
who are they going to be hiring today, 10 years, 20 years, you know, because of the, of the strategy, right? Um, law, the, the head of legal, head of financial uh, accounting, uh, head of reporting. So everybody kind of in their own uh, professional expertise will have to have some idea about the emerging issues in their area. But there will also be a portion, I think, you know, of roles, which is more specific corporate sustainability to help coordinate everything and to help communicate it for the company and to help drive a more long-term uh, embedment into business strategy development, right, for the longer term. And I think that's why it's, it's sustainability should be trained, as you mentioned, like for those that are in other professions, they need that angle. But uh, it, we are now at the point where I think there is enough demand for very specific training for corporate sustainability managers because their role also is now becoming more and more defined. And again, they're probably going to be here to stay. Yeah, you know, it reminds me so much of that transition of maybe 10 or 15 years ago, chief digital officers, digital transformation. And, and we all recall in those early days where, you know, digital, what's that? I think it belongs to marketing, throw it to the marketing guy, you know, and, and, and so, and of course, that wasn't what it was. That was just an aspect of e-commerce or market facing or setting up a website or whatever, you know, limitations you had there. And what people and what executives and CEOs soon learn, it, it is it is transformational. It has to cut across the entire organization. It touches every aspect of the organization. So these chief digital officers came into being, which actually next to the CEO were probably the most knowledgeable about what, what went on, everything from soup to nuts, HR, marketing, operations, the whole bit. They had to understand all aspects of the business. This is exactly what I'm seeing now with you know the rise that the chief sustainability officer he or she needs to be somebody who is really across the organization, very nimble, very clever, very capable of asking good questions, almost investigative to some degree to understand where are the gaps and the issues. So there's a mindset. There's almost a, an interesting set of soft skills here that need to be taken into consideration. It's not something which simply needs to sit with HR or with marketing or with communications, it's somebody who is really more trans transitional and transformative in, in nature. It, 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 is that that's my feeling about this? Is that what you're yeah. seeing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. and that's part of the learning curve we were talking mm. about. It started off being in one department or another, as you mm. said, even with the digitalization movement, right? Digital transformation movement is that in the beginning, people kind of they start to put it in a department depending on how they how they defined that topic at that point in time. Mm. But as you move up the learning curve, you realize, okay, this is much bigger than this. And, oh, it's now not just this department. Oh, it's got this department. Oh, no. Like, so as you start to move and you think, oh, my God, it touches everything. <laughs> and that's when you get your chief, you know, CXO, right? That, that gets born because you realize this is something that actually needs to be embedded into almost, you know, every uh, corporate function their knowledge, right? So, um, you know, the company secretary was something that didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. And, and, and now, you know, the go board governance issues are, are, there's so much of it that everyone needs their own company secretariat department because there's so much of it to, to manage. And again, you know, very similarly, I just think um, we really need, the world needs to move forward to actually understand ES&G uh, at the very deep expertise level, we need to professionalize environmental uh, board governance uh, practitioners, 
uh, social impact assessment practitioners, um, HR, you know, these are all areas where that specific expertise does need to be developed and it does need to be professionalized so that then the corporate decision makers, when they're trying to make the decisions to balance all of these areas, that they are well-informed when they are, you know, when they are going to make these decisions. That's well said. I, I'm, and, and you've just raised, and you, you raised this at the beginning of the conversation as well, there is this interconnectedness between the E, S, and the G. Yes. And oftentimes they're seen as unique and distinct and put in their little silos. And as a result, you don't get that um, that's cross-fertilization, which yes. is essential in order for you to understand how people you know, or in, engage at a certain level, then, you know, have a, a different uh, outlook or mindset, and then become more um, aware of the challenges and on the climate side. And then the governance piece, of course, speaks to how effective you are in tracking, monitoring and reporting on this mm-hmm. in a very transparent fashion. It, it is fundamentally about business. Just like way back when they said sooner or later, they're going to drop the E from E business, and it's just going to be business. <laughs> Same thing here. Sustainability is not a standalone issue to be kind of grappled with. It is an integral part of every new and emerging and evolving business in the day. So, So again, what we're saying here is the importance of this role is probably at this point being understated and underappreciated. Therefore, now more than ever, we need to raise the caliber and quality of people who are stepping into these chief sustainability officer roles. Uh, and again, back to you, this is where we come in, accreditations, trainings, you know, uh, competency developments. We need to do this in such a way where organizations and CEOs respect and understand the importance of doing it now and doing it well. Do you, do you feel that, that, that the, the CEOs out there are fully embracing and understanding what's at stake, or are they still sitting on the fence? Well, I think, as I mentioned earlier, we are more of a the nature, well, the culture is compliance driven, right? So I think as long as the stock exchanges, you know, are are actually starting to incorporate new disclosure requirements. So we have the ESG, uh, ESG guideline, or well, now that's that's a comply or explain. Uh, the newest version in, you know, actually incorporated some of the requirements from the task force on um, climate uh, related financial disclosures, right? The TCFD. And, you know, that was encouraging because that was, you know, actually having that requirement, uh, you know, under the stock exchange disclosure um, area means that companies that are listed now have to put in information to say, well, are you aware of what climate risks uh, you have, like, you know, for your business, for your assets, for your operations? Because, it starts with awareness building. You actually, you know, you ha- they have to ask themselves that question before then later on, okay, you know, what are you doing to mitigate it? What are your future business plans? Uh, yeah, okay, you say you're going to do renewables. Have you, you know, put aside money for it? And I think that kind of questioning um, in some of these disclosures is healthy. I think most stock exchanges are a bit more, they'll take their time to do that. And that's why I also want to highlight maybe some of the sustainability indices like the Dow Jones, um, FTSE for good. I think they've been great. Uh, the CDP, Carbon Disclosure Project, you know, I think they've been fantastic at helping companies move up that learning curve, you know, to first be aware, then to learn to, okay, we need to set targets, we need to set goals. 
uh, you know, and then they ask, oh, well, you know, what, what money have you set aside to actually deal with? You go, oh, yeah, you know, we you know, haven't thought about that. Okay, you know, then, you know, we should think about that. So I actually think that that combination of some of these indices, and there's now more of them, um, and, and with stock exchange, uh, you know, requirements, uh, the Asian CEOs and CFOs uh, and COOs are all now paying more attention. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to, you know, beat this horse too too hard, but I, I, I it also concerns me um, because we're seeing the same uh, uh, developments here in Singapore as well, where the stock exchange is realizing we need to keep lifting the bar, making sure that it's not just you know checking a few boxes, but really being thoughtful in terms of how you're gra- grappling with this, reporting it, you know, tracking it. Um, but at the same time, I think there's a missed opportunity here. The weighting is so much on the side of compliance and checking the boxes and accountability that you're missing the strategic opportunity to innovate by virtue of needing to change the model, right? So I, I see that a lot of CSOs are brought in to kind of just, you know, work with the CFO, you know, get that done, make sure we're compliant. But then what about, you know, the fact that, hey, by virtue of being required to, you know, comply with ES and G, we now can rethink the way we do business. We can actually create a new business model. We can now appeal to our customers, to our stakeholders, to our communities, to our, our suppliers in new ways. We have a different proposition. Mm-hmm. And with that proposition, perhaps you know, we as a business can actually lift ourselves from just being you know, brick and mortar, right? Moving into something else. I, I don't see that. And yet there's lots of examples emerging um, out of out of Europe and out of the US right now. There's a few interesting ones that are starting to come up, like a group called MAS, which is in, in Sri Lanka, interestingly enough, which is one of the largest providers of sports garments to groups like Nike, New Balance, and, and Adidas. Um, and they have a circular economy thinking going on and, and are using this opportunity to transform the way that they operate, the way that they manufacture, the way they treat their people. So you do see these inspired family-owned businesses starting to say, well, let's just grab onto this and run with it, mm. but not enough. What, what, what would it take to get other, let's say, Hong Kong listed organizations start to think this way? What, what do you think would, would be required? So, you know, I think it goes back to my earlier point that, you know, human beings naturally, it just takes time to go through the learning curve. And um, as with any population of a normal distribution, there's always some outliers in the leadership area where, you know, they see it way before everybody else. Right. And I think, you know, even even in Hong Kong, you know, there's been half a dozen companies that, you know, and, and you know, including uh, China Light and Power, for example, CLP, that, you know, they started doing sustainable reporting um, you know, 15 years ago. And so there's always going to be some of these leadership outliers because they do have that vision and they're willing to, uh, they're willing to be, you know, close to the bleeding edge just to, you know, to be a leader and to, to actually develop the knowledge earlier. Um, but most, the bulk of everyone else, I think it just takes that time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, in my, you know, in my years in this career, I've started, counting. So I, you know, I, I kind of like to see patterns and I say, well, it takes three years for people to actually realize and embrace. It takes, you know, three to five years to kind of build like, okay, now you're going to build a system. You're going to collect the data. People are going to start to say, oh, why are you doing this data? Da, da, da. And, then, and then 
you know, by the eighth year, you know, anywhere between six to eighth year, you start to think about, okay, I'm going to set goals, right? Now I realize, oh, there's efficiencies to be had. And so it's almost like, in my mind, it's kind of predictable where and when it's going to happen. Now, when we go back to the example of North America and Europe, they're now, they're doing it now, but think of how long it's taken them to. I mean, it's been two decades they've been talking about this at least, um, uh, you know, since the 70s even. But I mean, actual action starting to happen was really 20 years ago, 2000. Um, but then I'm hoping in Asia, it's not going to take us 20 years, but it'll take us 10. Like, so in a way, I, I, I hope it be faster, but mm. uh, but it still takes time. I think it's just the, the, the human mind has this pattern of, of learning and, and growing and developing and, and everyone's a bit different in how fast they can do it. Let's just hope that, you know, more of us, as soon as we see advantages, I think that's the other thing is a hockey stick effect too. Like, I think sometimes when you see certain companies in your sector suddenly benefiting, you'd be amazed at how quickly the rest of that sector starts moving mm. because they see that one example. Well, so I'm it. actually hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. It's showcasing, you know, just identifying the champions, you know, um, making sure their stories get out to market, set the the pace, set the model um, and, and, and hope that others recognize there's opportunity here, not yeah. just greater exposure, greater transparency, greater risk. Um, and, and, and also the, the issue on time, well, that's a precious commodity right now. Sure. And, and unlike so many other transitions that have taken place in the last 30, 40, 50 years, um, now you're up against ecological you know, limitations, climate, yeah. right? And, and that is, so we have between now and 2030, and we've set these goals, which I think are realizable. Um, so we don't have the luxury in some ways uh, that we once had, which is the one differentiating factor that I see. Do, do you share in that? And do you have concerns or do you believe we're on pace? At the end of the day, we're going to get there. What, what would be your, your outtake on that? Well, I, 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 I was born more of an optimist. So I'll say that I, look, I think, you know, beyond, you know, containing beyond two degrees is, is going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Um, so, but I'm hopeful that the world is moving towards that direction. Maybe it's something below three degrees, you know, and that continues to happen. Um, but I think in the process, business will also learn a lot more about the environment and how, you know, it needs to actually take it into consideration as a part of its business operations, right? Right now it's ticking the box or, well, if it's non-compliance and it's just a fee and I can pay it, it's a part of operating costs. Like, I mean, that, you know, that's, the, that's the problem, right? So until we, we change that, and I do think, I, I go back to regulations. I think regulations will definitely help to move this a bit faster. When you don't have the regulations, then that speed is definitely not going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we are, but we are. I think when you're looking now at the financial industry, I was always saying the people that are making money, if they actually finally decide this is something that they're going to do something about, you know, okay, we have hope. And, you know, you're seeing the finance industry. They're all excited about sustainable bonds, green bonds, uh, you know, different types of financial tools. You know, how can we have sustainable finance? Um, how can this all work so that we can uh, have the double uh, possible uh, gains in economic, but also environmental gains, or at least protecting the environment so that there's no negative impacts. And I think when you're starting to see the financial sector get involved, I think that that can really move the dial. 
Mm. Um, but I, but it, I do go back to regulations. And I think, again, you know, when you have regulations, you are actually are creating um, more of a price signal also of what is important, what's not important. Mm. And so I think that that does need to, to happen. Yeah, appropriate financing, proper incentives, and yeah. a government uh, support and regulations. Yes. Okay. Well said. Listen, <laughs> well, well summarized. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's really a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking time today and speaking with us. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for inviting me onto your program. It's been a great pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Jeannie Ong, chairman of the Hong Kong Institute of Qualified Environmental Professionals. Our discussion highlights the fact that even if countries throughout Asia were prepared to make the commitments necessary to reduce emissions and combat climate change, the talent necessary to navigate that change are in short supply. The key word here is commitment. Recent data suggests Asia is well off the mark in terms of what it needs to be doing to keep global warming in check. At the outset of our discussion, I asked Jeannie why that's the case. Her response is a thoughtful reflection on how things work in the region and why lingering post-colonial sentiments in many places make it difficult to trust the intentions of Western powers, many of whom were key culprits in creating the current climate crisis and now want full participation from countries that aren't to blame but are expected to help solve the problem anyway. One senior banker I spoke to said, the problem may be more political than economic. Why should Indonesia back off its 40% target growth in coal if it means providing basic electricity for its people, he said. In principle, he's right. It's unfair. North America and Europe have spent the last century polluting the environment in order to achieve their current levels of economic status. Is it reasonable to ask developing markets throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America to do with less? On the face of it, no, it's not fair or reasonable. But here's the harsh irony. It's Asia that's due to suffer the most if we fail to keep the planet from warming more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Drastic and life-threatening shifts in weather patterns will bring flood and drought and devastation. In other words, Asia is in the ecological crosshairs. A recent report from Deloitte entitled The Turning Point suggests that climate inaction could cost this part of the world $96 trillion by 2070. On the other hand, tackling the challenges and using this as an opportunity to invest in renewables, advanced farming techniques, and green supply chains could, in contrast, generate upwards of $47 trillion in new income over the next 50 years. Which brings us back to talent. If considered in the appropriate light, our current climate crisis presents an opportunity for Asia to leapfrog Western economies. China is already demonstrating how this is possible with the world's largest installed base of wind and solar, and ambitious plans to leverage the global push to decarbonize by becoming a frontrunner in sustainable technologies. To support this drive, China is placing big bets on developing the talent to support its goals. Elsewhere in Asia, the record is mixed. It's a missed opportunity, says Jeannie. Culturally, Asia-based societies are more compliance versus innovation-driven, she says. Add to that a less-than-enthusiastic political response to the crisis, and you can see why Asia may well find itself at a disadvantage. Corporations are the one institution that can make the difference. And rather than wait on their respective home governments to impose demands, taking a proactive stance and employing a new generation of talent to re-engineer business could pay dividends. What we need are more Asia corporate champions, says Jeannie. 
It only takes a handful of visionary companies to set an example for the others. We can only hope. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. And if you haven't checked out our new website, please do so. There are over 180 episodes to choose from, all searchable and covering a range of topics, from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter. So if you prefer reading to listening, now you can do so. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights and references earlier episodes on related topics as well. Over the past four years, we've featured a wide range of regional thought leaders, business heads, and operational insiders. Hear what they have to say by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening. Thank you.